You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 225. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. We have a great show planned for you this week in our Your Stock Artake segment. Aaron answers a listener question on Highliner Foods Incorporated, symbol HLF on the TSX, a leading North American processor and marketer of value-added frozen seafood. While the stock offers a strong 4.3% dividend, we continue to have some reservations on the stock, and Aaron lets you know what the business would have to do to become a buy. I will answer a listener question on Lightspeed Commerce Inc., symbol LSPD on the TSX, which offers a unified point of sales and payments platform. Having reviewed and passed on the stock multiple times in the past with it trading at significantly higher prices, a viewer asks us if it finally offers value after announcing it will break even this year. With U.S. cannabis stocks jumping last week, Brett explores the news that sent the sector soaring after two years of tough times and whether it is sustainable or more of a dead cat bounce for U.S. cannabis stocks. Last but not least, Brennan revisits a segment he put together back in May on Canadian banks and beginning to extend their mortgage amortization periods and where they are today after reporting their Q3 numbers last week. So let's get to the show. I'm going to welcome my co-host, Mr. Aaron Dunn, and as always, the killer bees, Brett and Brennan. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Yeah. What about yourself? Good. Back to school. It's back I to know, school. Crazy. Summer's over. Yeah. So Brennan's completing grade 12 this year. Pretty impressive. It's good to hear. Finally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Six, what is this year? Sixth attempt at grade Sixth attempt. Grade no, no. It's not the no, level Brennan's, two CFA. Brennan's doing level three this year. What are we talking about? <laughs> yes, it's true. Yes. It's true. Yeah. Brett and I. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see oh, how you guys. guys. That's right. Yeah. Lots of studying yeah. so far. And, uh, yeah, my social life's going to go downhill over the next uh, few months. Thankfully, <laughs> you know, it wasn't. Yeah, it's not like it was booming or anything. So. <laughs> yeah. no, Can't go lower than nothing. Sure it's, yeah, sure yeah. Your, your what is going to take a hit? What is your yeah, yeah, social? Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. But That's we will good. be well, uh, in Vancouver um, tomorrow and on Thursday yeah. for the Planet Micro. So we're going to be interviewing some companies there. Looking forward to that. Getting out of uh, Saskatchewan for a quick day. Yeah, I got six or eight interviews tomorrow as well. I got to give a, or no, not tomorrow, Thursday morning. I got to give a speech at the event on Wednesday. And then I got to fly out Thursday afternoon with Aaron to Toronto where we're going to the money show. And it's Friday, I believe, Aaron, right? We do a speech there. Friday, uh, we'll put some Friday details. at 4.30. Is, is it 4.30? believe around 4 30 around that time and that's yeah, eastern right, right around yeah. that time 4 to 4 30 yeah i think it ends about five so maybe 4 15 is when it starts 45 minutes we'll be giving a speech out there so if you're in the toronto area or anywhere in the world and you want to fly in and see myself and aaron 
give us 45 minute speech, uh, markets where we are right now. Some, uh, some selections there too, as well. So come into Toronto, the greatest place on earth, as Brennan says all the time, um, and, uh, listen to us speak. Or, or if you're in Vancouver, we'll be at the, I'll be at the Planet Microcap show. Uh, I think it's a 5.30 time uh, Pacific on Wednesday of this week. Wednesday, the is that the 8th? So, Brennan, take a look at your calendar. We'll figure Wednesday it out. Wednesday the 6th. Uh, the 6th. The 6th? I don't know. It's the 8th that we speak in Toronto, right? I knew that's it was right. one yeah, of those. The 6th. Yeah. You'll be speaking the Planet Micro Wednesday the 6th. So that's 5.30 that's right. Pacific time? That's right. Yeah. Okay. 5 till 6. And then... Uh, yeah, some hospitality suite after. That's all nice. I know. Brennan made me aware of that. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's get to the show today because we've got a lot of work to get to outside of this show. So let's uh, let's get to it. Um, Aaron, you are revisiting a, a company we've looked at in the past, Highliner, and uh, seeing if seeing if you can uh, get on board with the sea captain. Do you remember the sea captain in those commercials from? Back in the day, well, how could I forget? I mean, uh, that was yes. that was part. That was half the reason why I recommended it way back. Was the sea captain, <laughs> just a crotchety old sea captain. And he was guys. an icon of my youth. Was. I mean, Highlander was. was very popular. You respected him more I than did. any yes. other yes. sea captain. <laughs> well, he's also the only sea captain I was really familiar familiar with. So. with. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, good. Okay, so why don't we um, why don't we talk a little bit about about Highlander here? These guys have no idea what we're talking about when we talk about the sea captain. It wasn't in their time. I'll Brennan? pull up well, the sea image. captain is yes, bring him up. in the current time still. It's just not as, I would say, as well-known a brand. <laughs> there he is. I, I feel was very well-known when I was growing up, when I was a kid um, and a teenager, so, you know, 50, 60 I think, years ago. I think they've handsomeified him there a little bit. He looks they did. more he's, handsome. He's a, little, he's a little younger than he once was, <laughs> yeah. right? But, uh, I think I, no, I think it's, it's, in it's an interesting company to t- take a look at because we actually did have an active buy recommendation on this company way back around 2011. Um, we sold out of it after about you know a year and a half, two years. It ended up performing very well. So I've been looking in on it quite a bit. I'm fairly consistency, consistently um, since that time to see if there's an opportunity to to get back in. But why don't we just walk through the specifics here. So Highlander Foods Inc., the symbol is HLF on the TSX exchange, trades at a price of about $12 per share, $400 million market cap with 33 million shares outstanding. And what they are, they are a leading North American processor and marketer of value-added frozen seafood. So the retail branded products, which are the ones that um, Ryan and I were so fond of when we were young, are sold throughout the United States and Canada under the Highliner, Fisher Boy, Mirabelle, Sea Cuisine, and Catch of the Day labels. And they're available in most grocery and club stores. So I see them when I go to Costco. I see them when I go to the superstore. Uh, the, the company also sells branded products under the Highlander, Highliner Icelandic Food, Mirabelle, and FPI labels to restaurants and institutions. So more or less kind of a, almost a wholesale um, segment. Um, they're major, also a major supplier of private label value-added value added frozen seafood products. Um, to North American food retailers and food service distributors. So they have uh, wide distribution chains through their business, uh, diversified product offering as well. But essentially what you're getting here, frozen frozen fish sticks. That's 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 the ultimate uh, that's the ultimate thing that you're getting. So we'll just take a look 
where's the stock price been over the last 12 months? You know, pretty, pretty flat with a lot of volatility. Stock price hasn't really gone much of anywhere. And that's, that's the same as really what we've seen over the last 10 years. If you go back about a decade, we're seeing a lot of ups and downs in the share price. We're not seeing any sustained, uh, any sustained growth from the business, at least not in its, in its stock market. Um, now, when we recommended the company, this was previous to 10 years ago. It was about 2011. We sold out about 2012, 2013. We made a, a pretty nice return at the time. And what we were seeing was a rather unknown company in the stock market that had just made a major acquisition, uh, had a lot of embedded growth and was trading at a low valuation. So that was a great deal. Um, and when we sold out is really because the valuation started getting ahead of itself. Also, the financial performance started to slow down. So let's take a look. As I said, we, we've been we've been looking in on the stock every couple of quarters over the past decade or more. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about some of my observations there. But first of all, let's just take a look at what the recent performance looks like. So Q2 2023 results, they were pretty much flat. Uh, sales volume of 59.4 million pounds of fish up 1% year over year. Uh, revenues of 254 million, basically flat year over year. The company did see a drop in their gross profit margin um, to 24 to 20.4% from 22.2% in Q2 of last year. So that's a 180 basis point drop. Adjusted EBITDA down 13% to 22 million, and then adjusted EPS basically flat. So if you look at the six month numbers, uh, a little bit, a little bit more growthy, but really not that impressive either. 3.3% sales volume growth, 6% uh, revenue growth, margins, gross profit margins still down compared to the previous year, adjusted EBITDA flat, and then uh, adjusted earnings per share up about 7%. Some of the key takeaways uh, from the Q2 results were that softer demand and higher inventory levels in the retail segment of the business is really what had a negative impact on profitability. The food service segment does continue to perform well, and it just completed its ninth consecutive quarter of growth. What the company's looking at doing, which is really continuously the story, it's what they're always looking at doing, is investing in innovation, targeted promotions and marketing, um, and also exploring opportunities for transformative growth through potential M&A or acquisition activities. And they have been somewhat success, successful in that regard over time, but it's it's not a consistent uh, it's not a consistent generator of growth. Usually significant acquisitions are years apart or else they're smaller, really bolt on and don't necessarily move the needle. Looking at the balance sheet, total debt of 340 million, uh, equity of 387 million. So on a debt equity basis, just under one, you know, reasonably, reasonably good. Um, and then debt to EBITDA based on trailing 12 month adjusted EBITDA of 100 $3 million, you're looking at a debt to EBITDA multiple of 3.7 times. So I think this is a little on the leverage side, uh, you know, given that um, the company does at the very least produce sustainable profitability. I, I, I don't think that the balance sheet is severely over leveraged, but I don't think that there's a lot of space for more leverage here. I would really like to see this multiple down at three times or even a little bit less than three. And then in terms of valuation, if we were to just base this off of the trailing 12-month 
um, earnings per share, adjusted earnings per share of $1.53, we'd be looking at a price to earnings multiple of eight times. Now, usually what I like to do is I also I also like to throw in some some analyst estimates into here so we can get an idea of what the forecasted earnings are for the current year and for next year. Problem is, is Highlander doesn't really have a lot of analyst coverage. From what I can see, there's two analysts covering the company. That doesn't really give a lot of credibility to the estimates. Um, but generally speaking, what we would be expecting would be to see a slight decline in earnings in in 2023. And that's, you know, that's more or less in line with what we see with the with the Q2 results. Um, so, you know, flat to slightly lower earnings in 2023, maybe potentially a little bit of growth in 2024. But we're, you know, we'd have to get into the year to see that. Uh, eight times earnings, that that's an attractive valuation. Certainly, it's a discount to the market. It begs the question, is this a value opportunity? So I, I'm going to answer that. W what is our take on, on Highliner? And, you know, really, I, I mean, I think it's an interesting company. It has that recognizable brand, diversified product offering. Its products, again, are widely distributed. And the valuation is low relative to earnings, making it that potential value opportunity. Uh, and what you would want to see here from a value opportunity is, is that valuation multiple to expand. So right now we're at a fairly sizable discount to the market, eight times earnings uh, for a company that is still relatively healthy, if not much of a growth stock, um, but eight times earnings. And you'd want that valuation, either, either the earnings would grow and the valuation would stay the same and that's what would create the share price growth or the valuation multiple would expand maybe from eight to 10 times, um, which either with flat earnings or growing earnings would again be positive for the share price. Uh, the question is, is that going to happen? Is can, can we make a reasonable assumption over the next one, one to two years that either the earnings are going to grow meaningfully or the valuation multiple is going to expand meaningfully? And I would argue that at this point, we really cannot. Um, the reasons for that is one, they've really been unable to maintain consistent earnings growth or just consistent growth in revenue um, over time. And as I'd said, we've been looking in on this company every couple of quarters for more than a decade since we got out of it. And really, you know, they, they just, they're never able to build sustained momentum in their financial performance. They'll come out with a couple of good quarters. Uh, then they'll come out with some poor quarters and they're really just up and down. And we've seen this in the share price. I mean, the share price has really reflected what's been going on with the financials. One of the things that they have lacked in the past that has really been a challenge for them is passing on um, higher costs to consumers, so increasing prices. Now, they were able to do that last year um, in the highly inflationary environment, uh, which is good, but historically they, they've had trouble with it. You know, last year might have been a, a, a bit of an anomaly given that everybody was increasing prices, but I have noticed them lack pricing power. The balance sheet again is okay. But we would consider it fully leveraged. I mean, it's not a situation where, you know, they're looking to do M&A or acquisition activity. You know, it's not a situation where they have this under levered balance sheet and a ton of cash. And we think like, oh, they have the capital structure to go out and deploy that and do a big deal and bring it in. They're already pretty fully leveraged. So um, could they add a little more debt on? Sure. I guess it would just depend on the deal. But, you know, really, I don't see I, I can't make an argument at this point in time that the valuation multiple is going to expand. It may expand just with overall market investor sentiment, but that's really risky to try and predict that. Um, earnings, as I said, 
you know, they may go up the analyst expectations off of the two analyst forecasts is that there'll be a little bit of growth in 2024. But I mean, that's really uncertain right now. We, we, we can't say. So I, I think that probably the stock is um, appropriately priced from what we can see. Now, if they're able to do anything like a good acquisition deal or string together, you know, several quarters of consistent growth, even if it's a moderate level of growth, then at that point we can see the valuation multiple expand. But I, I just, I can't make a strong argument that that's going to happen over the next one to two or one to three years. So um, we're not, we're not buying it right now. We're going to continue to following, to follow it. It's an interesting business. And what we want to see is we want to see it demonstrate a track record of being able to grow um, consistently on the organic revenue line and also on the earnings line, earnings, earnings per share line as well. And that's that. Yeah. And Brennan said he has that man in his freezer. So I you should probably so, uh, but, check uh, your freezer and get him the hell out of there. It was actually Jane's. I had to, well. No, I I, I mean, I, I've i got Highliner in my freezer. Did it, you just go check? It, I, I went yeah, and checked. I, I went and checked. Yeah. So it's Jane's. And I will say just like anecdotally, from like a consumer perspective, like I've walked down, you know, the frozen like fish aisle and have seen, you know, a box of fish now, you know, 25 bucks or something along those lines. And it's like, I will push that off. I don't need to buy fish right now, even though, you know, I like that in my diet. It's healthy for you. Get those omegas as my mother's taught me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just uh, I, I wonder if that'll, you know, uh, impact it. And then as well, I was just looking at like the processed foods and feeds uh producer price index for uh fresh fish and seafood and you know we're basically tapping off of you know 10 year highs basically and it has been doing that since you know july of 2022 so you know as we've seen some commodity prices come down i don't know if fish has uh you know it might still remain a little bit elevated right here you're worried about the captain that's good aye aye let's Let's move on. I think Aaron did a great summary on the company there. I think we know what we need to see from Highliner going forward to you know, really have us put a buy. I don't think it's a terrible company. Like Aaron said, great brand. But uh, you know, if you look at it, I looked at the cash flow numbers, inconsistent for 10 years, really. Mm-hmm. Let's look at Lightspeed Commerce Inc. I'm going to handle that. It's LSPD on the TSX. Trades at $22.24. Market cap $3.38 billion. It's based in Montreal. Lightspeed is a cloud vendor of omni-channel point-of-sale software to retail and hospitality customers, uh, restaurants and retail, even uh, it, uh, Brennan would like it's some golf courses and locations like that. Uh, its software is used by over 160,000 mid-market customers in North America, Europe, and Australia. Let's look at the Q1 fiscal 2024 highlights. Q the revenues were up 20% to 209 million. Subscription revenues, which are uh, great for the business, were up 7% to 78.7 million. But the company had a net loss, 48.7 million, as compared to a net loss of 100.8 million in the same period last year. So I guess you can say while the company still loses money, uh, it's losing less. Adjusted EBITDA was a loss of $7 million versus an adjusted EBITDA loss of $15.6 million in the previous year. Uh, as at June 30th, 2023, Lightspeed has a great balance sheet. How about $780 million in cash and cash equivalents with basically no debt. Valuations. The company trades at over 20 times EV to adjusted EBITDA. It's fiscal 
fiscal year 2025 estimates. It's trailing price to sales is 3.25. There is no PE as the company loses money. We went over that. We do not expect accounting EPS to be positive for this fiscal year, which is fiscal 2024 or fiscal year 2025. Our take, Lightspeed has stated that it remains on track for adjusted EBITDA break-even or better in fiscal 2024. Revenue should be in the range of 875 to 900 million. This is close to 22% growth over last year. We do appreciate Lightspeed has shown remarkable growth via acquisition and to a degree organically since 2020 or 2016 when it posted just 30.7 million in revenue to its annual revenue expected this year of around 90 million or 900 million. So this is remarkable growth in revenues. The company raised capital at an opportune time and boasts a huge cash balance of 780 million, like we said, and limited debt. We have answered questions on the podcast when the stock traded in the 140 range, $100 range, $80 range, 60, 40, and down to the $20 range today. Our issue with the business, as it was then, is a lack of profitability. Operationally, the company lost $27 million back in 2016, despite massive growth in revenue. Uh, over the last 12 months, they lost $243 million. Now, the losses on an adjusted basis are decreasing, and management is looking to break even on an adjusted EBITDA basis in the current year or better. Again, this is not a positive accounting earnings, just on an adjusted basis. Losses are shrinking, there's solid revenue growth, and the strong client base that this business has. It is moving in the right direction, Lightspeed is, but still has a long road ahead of it to meet our basic criteria. And that's all I have on Lightspeed today. You don't understand the technology. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. No, yeah, I, I mean, this is one where you can. It's point of sale systems. Uh, you know, it, it just, you know, it's not making, it hasn't historically made money. And what I do worry with businesses like this, um, it's great to have that cash, but if you've uh, never needed to have the discipline to be profitable over time, it, it's a different animal to bring that company into profitability in the long term. So we'll see if this management group can do that. Uh, they've, you know, they've not had to do that since really the existence of the company because they've had cash on the balance sheet significantly, particularly as they're as they've been a public entity, they've had that cash there. Uh, so they didn't have the discipline to every quarter, make sure they had some cash going into the bank so they could pay the bills. Uh, they could pay that out of the money they raised in ca uh, capital markets. So is, is this a company that can consistently produce profitability over the long term? We have no idea because they haven't done it in the past and uh, they're trying to do that now, but it's still a couple years off until you really see positive accounting earnings on this business. So, mm -hmm. so uh, we know, have let's, a, if, if ever, so let's see yeah. that actually happen first and then, then, you know, get excited about. Yes. Yeah, so like we had a quest or a, a comment on the last time that you did it about a year ago, uh, on Lightspeed, And, you know, this person basically says that I'm so screwed, you know, I got in at $70 and it's now $16. I don't know what to do now, you know, and, and a individual commented on their post and said, average in at a lower price. I mean, seeing the fundamentals, right now where they are and that we're two years, you know, possibly further out, you know, you guys would agree that averaging in at a lower price probably isn't the most prudent strategy to continue. No, I to mean, the, accumulate. the strategy has to be when you're making that initial, initial investment, 
if it's a real investment that you're serious about, don't buy businesses that are cash flow negative yeah. and, and expect anything different than to lose your money over the long term. And that's what's happened here. Now we can't go back in time a uh, time machine and tell them that at that time. But uh, you know, it wouldn't be a recommendation of ours right now because it doesn't meet our initial criteria. But you don't get yourself into that situation with Lightspeed of buying at $70. You think, oh, it was at 140, it's at 70, it's down 50%, it must be on sale. Well, the underlying fundamentals then uh, said, do not touch this stock. If, yeah. if, if you're looking at anything uh, to do with cash flow or a company that consistently can produce cash flow, it wasn't there. And it's not a surprise for us to see it go from 70 to 20. The investment philosophy that keeps you out of this situation uh, is to buy a business that has cash flow. You wouldn't have bought uh, uh, a company like um, Lightspeed at that, if, yeah. if that was part of your initial criteria. And, and it needs to be going forward. Yeah, Made the mistake, probably get out, and then move to a company that has cash flow going forward. And hopefully now they're a subscriber and they you know, follow our philosophy. So it's they don't true. make that mistake in the future. Yeah. I mean, investing in the stock market is tough enough, but if you you know compound it by buying companies that don't have any cash flow, um, you're not going to make any money over the long term. And I, we've been asked before if there's one piece of advice you can give a retail investor who's who's buys stocks, what is the best piece of advice? And our best piece, hands down, is don't buy companies that aren't making money. So if they're not making prof profit, avoid them. If they're not making revenue, generating revenue, don't even consider them. That's about the easiest rule that you can apply to avoid the most amount of risk quite, yeah. qu quite easily. Very simple. Yeah. All right. Let's move to the cannabis segment very quickly. We got a few questions on why cannabis stocks across the board basically jumped higher uh, last week. Brett's done some investigating. He's going to let you know why. So going from no cash flow to no cash flow is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. All right. Yes. Like Ryan said, over the last week, we've really seen the cannabis industry stocks just pop in price. So we'll use as a proxy for the industry advisor shares pure U.S. cannabis ETF or MSOS trading on the New York Stock Exchange at the close on August 29th. So a week ago from this recording, the ETF was trading about 485 and is now trading intraday at 785, a 62% increase within a week. Mind you, that result still only results in a 14% increase year to date after that massive increase in the past week. So why is the industry just suddenly become so revitalized? The answer is simple. Expectations have changed due to the senior U.S. Department of Health and Human Services calling on the DEA to ease restrictions on the mar on marijuana from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3, Schedule 1 being the highest designation for the most dangerous of substances. However, the DEA, DEA has final authority for any changes to scheduling, and the changes merely an increase in potential at this point. A change in scheduling would likely allow for easier avenues for research, easier access to banking, and less taxation. As well, this does not mean mar marijuana will be in the same state in the US as it is in Canada. It would still be federally illegal. That would require de being descheduled completely, and that's not what we're seeing at this time, but many are seeing this as a step towards that in whatever, five, 10 years, whatever timeline you want to give it. So how would this impact equity investors? 
we would see less taxation as companies are not allowed to use credits and deductions on income from Schedule 1 and 2 drugs at this time. A clear economic benefit expected savings of in the hundreds of millions for many multi-state operators. On the operational side, we'd see access to better banking, which would likely result in lower expenses. As, cer- as right now, only certain banks allow uh, cannabis players to bank with them. So it increases costs due to that. However, the rescheduling still falls well short of the recreational demand increase like we saw in Canada years ago. In reality, it just reduces the toxicity of the current operating environment for the industry. But that does not alone make an industry. So looking deeper at the MSOS ETF, first off, you may notice that they primarily hold equity swaps, not just common shares. This is due to federal and custodial banking restrictions, limiting direct investing in the equity. As the ETF invests in swaps, it has a large amount of cash as collateral. So if you're looking at the holdings, why, why do they have this huge cash balance? It's because they have to hold that cash as collateral. They don't really have that cash position. If they were just to buy the equity or the common shares, you wouldn't see that cash position and they're just using these swamps because they cannot directly invest in common shares. The ETF currently holds 25 companies at this time with its top five holdings being Green Thumb Industries, Cureleaf, Trueleaf Cannabis, Verano, and Terra Ascend, representing 77% of the total assets held by this ETF that's likely to shift over the next week as obviously we've seen extreme volatility, but those are the five biggest holdings representing the mass majority of the ETF, and that's unlikely to change as a whole. Looking historically, Green Thumb Industry is the only company that is currently profitable, with True Relief previously having a string of profitability, and those out of the top five holdings, those are the only ones who have had profitability historically. As a whole, the industry is really still just in a speculative phase, having the valuations bank on the expectations of future earnings, but that does not mean they will become profitable or have positive cash flows in the future. We can really use Canada as a proxy for full recreational legalization in the U.S. I would remind the listeners that the potential rescheduling is still far off recreational usage like we've seen in Canada. Cannabis is ultimately a commodity. It is a crop with minimal differentiation from its core products. We are now seeing Canada edibles and drinks and stuff like that have adding a bit more differentiation, but the plant as a whole is a commodity. So what what result is you see a race to the bottom in pricing as producers produce as much of supply as they possibly can, causing razor thin margins or even negative gross margins for many of the players in Canada, where you aren't even seeing those harsh taxations like you are in the U.S. currently, where you can't deduct. And, And still in the U.S. and in Canada as well, the tax sale taxes are high. Where it is legal in the U.S., you see an additional sales tax between 6% up to 37% in Washington, with the majority ranging between 10 and 20% being the sweet swap for most states. Also, there is potential if we do see federal legalization that you see more taxes on the federal level, whether that's wholesales or a sales tax of some kind. So as a whole, the industry is still regulatory high risk in the U.S., and it will continue to be. It's just slightly, ever so slightly less at this time, but that does not warrant really a 60% increase in valuation, in my opinion. The industry will, in the future, be commoditized and will be subject to high taxes, likely. You might see a couple of states 
see lower taxation, like I forget which one it was, but at 6%, that's not too bad compared to your 37% in Washington. But the fact is, it's going to likely have high taxes and high commoditization. Those are both very negative aspects for equity investors. Remember, you're not investing in the industry as a whole. The big winner here is the government because they're seeing those tax revenues. You're an equity investor, not an industry investor. So any tangible, and as well, any tangible market demand is still years out because you're not going to see it, see a big demand shift with this rescheduling. We're once again seeing just, just, just the same headline-driven share price appreciation, which once the interest fades, whether it's a month or a year from now before anything else comes, you're just going to see the current players just slowly burn through their cash for the most part. You'll see their stock just slowly, slowly drift away and they'll dilute their shares to raise their new capital. You might see an outlier or two in the future, not at this time, who do become sustainably profitable. And we're not really seeing that at this time. The best bet at this time would be Green Thumb, but we saw before with TrueLeave, they were profitable for, I think, about five years. And now they're not in their profit anymore. And you might may see some investors say, well, I'm going to hedge my bets. I'll buy MSOS to take, say, hey, I'm going to bet on a bunch of them, and maybe one winner or pop out. But then you're also buying a ton of losers at the same time. So eliminating any of the potential gains from that winner or just going to loser itself. And just to end it off, the industry is really just still far off from being a buy and hold investable criteria, hitting that criteria. Really anything past being an event-based trader, it's just not really worth touching at this time. Yeah, I think it's a good summary. It was a recommendation. It still has to go through many hoops before it actually gets to be put into uh, anything that would be meaningful for the sector. Now, again, it's not still full legalization either. So, mm-hmm. And on top of all of these things, you went over the scenario in the Canadian market with, you know, cannabis being a commodity, margins shrinking over time. Uh, it's just, you know, perhaps like you said, there could be some winners. It's very difficult to pick them right now. And I think part of the big jump that you saw um, and have seen over the past few days uh, since this was released was there's such a negative sentiment. There were short positions on many of these companies. It would be short covering probably just, you know, they're covering their bots at some point. They're probably significant profits. And then that's why you're seeing such an extreme move in the, in the share price in such a short time. Um, you know, that, that's what I would speculate on what was caused that really extreme move. So can it sustain itself? Uh, ultimately, the companies have to show better growth, better profitability. Probably some of the competitors have to leave this exit, the segment, and, and then uh, you can have some sustainable players. Now, that's probably going to play out over a three, five, 10 year period. So yeah. um, this may be a footnote. I mean, it's a positive note right now for the sector, which has had nothing but negative for yeah. quite a, a, I mean, a significant amount of time. And they've been talking about, you know, changing the schedule for, forever. You know, I mean, cannabis is up there with heroin, LSD, uh, ecstasy, you know, like basically what the schedule one drug says basically too, is that, um, it's highly addictive and it has no acceptable, acceptable, uh, medical use. So, I mean, it it was only a matter of time that it changed. And then as well, just, you know, to touch again on the, 
um, commodity. Like Ryan was telling me that back in 2014, when he would go to his local dispensary, he was paying about, you know, $200 for an ounce. And now he can buy an ounce for about $100. So, I mean, that's just to show the commodity right there. You, right. You were telling it's me weird that, that Brennan knows those off the top of his head, right? Like it's, I couldn't quote you any of those, but it's weird know, that he knows know. those off the top of his head. We didn't even tell him we were doing this segment. So. No. Anyways. No, but it's a good sign that maybe the government's moving in a positive direction, but nothing more, nothing to get too excited about. Yeah. And and the, the, as far as like schedule one to schedule three, uh, the, the, the recommendation, the Department of Health and Human Services recommendations, they are binding on a scientific and med, on scientific and medical matters. So, um, you know, like Brennan said, it would suggest that it's likely going to move for sure out of schedule one with the heroines of the world, uh, which most people can agree it's not in that category. So that likely happens, but it's probably going through the timeline into the presidential elections. There's, this is highly politicized, like the, Mm -hmm. the, 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 it's not legalization, but even moving from schedule one to schedule three. So they'll want to be talking about it around those times. So, I mean, that's not until like into 2024. So still a ways out before, uh, there's, any absolute conclusion and the larger players that would really take to move the sector uh, long-term uh, probably are waiting until they, they have that green light. And that's, it's not even a full green light. That's what we're kind of trying to get to anyways. All right, Brennan, you want to revisit, let's move on to your uh, segment on the banks. See if uh, in terms of 30 plus year mor- mortgage mortgages, uh, they've increased those in terms of their books, more mortgage books, or stayed yeah. the same, slightly down. You let us know. You betcha. So, yeah, we did a segment back in uh, May on the Canadian banks beginning to extend mortgage amortization periods on outstanding mortgages to help ease the pain of some Canadians facing higher interest rates and ongoing infl- inflationary pressures. So, now that the banks have reported their Q3 2023 results, uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago, I thought that I would go over some common th- themes we saw with the banks' results. And of course, like Ryan was just saying, see what their mortgages by remaining amortization looks like now. So, just quickly on the actual results, uh, several of the banks failed to meet analyst expectations, and only RBC actually outperformed uh, the expectations. And just some of the common themes which they reported here were there was growth in GIC funding as investors flock to higher interest bearing securities. Uh, There were comments that there was a bit of a slowdown in deal making and mortgages as consumers are more cautious with elevated rates and a few cited fierce competition for mortgage spreads right now. Uh, A couple of banks also discussed reducing headcount, specifically RBC as well as TD. And for TD, uh, they indicated that they had, you know, a a few large uh, one-time costs due to the failed acquisition of uh, First Horizon Corp. And lastly, this is probably the biggest takeaway. Every bank reported higher provisions for credit losses. So I have up on the screen here just a, a few for an example, like BMO. Their provision for credit losses this year was $492 million compared to the same quarter last year, which was about $136 million here. Um, you know, also, just a note to keep in mind, these aren't actual credit losses that the banks have experienced, but it's just that the banks are placing aside more provisions for potential losses in the future. Uh, so you know, we'll see kind of how that works out uh, going forward. And I also wanted to just 
to show here that uh, some earnings estimates from analysts and that they've been downgrading their EPS estimates uh, as the banks are facing a tougher macroeconomic environment. So we've seen uh, you know revisions kind of across the board here. Now, actually moving to the bank's mortgages by remaining amortization, just as a reminder, in 2021, there were basically no mortgages with an amortization period of greater than 35 years. Now, almost a third of all mortgages in Canada are over you know, those that 30-year uh, amortization. Um, so first, I've got TD up on the screen here. Uh, now they have about 48% of its mortgages with a greater than 25-year amortization as we ended up seeing an uptick in the 25 to 30 year mortgages and a slight move downward in mortgages greater than 35 years. Now, this is also a similar story with CIBC. 47% of all mortgages have an amortization period greater than 25 years, uh, which was pushed up by growth in the 25 to 30 year mortgages and was again offset by a slight decline in mortgages greater than 35 years. And RBC lastly, uh, 43% of their mortgages have an amortization of greater than 25 years. And again, there was a slight increase in 25 to 30 year mortgages with a slight decrease in mortgages over 35 years. So I also wanted to bring this up. Um, the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, or FCAC, we'll call them, uh, said two thirds of mortgage holders in Canada are having trouble meeting their financial commitments. So in July, the FCAC uh, provided new guidelines for banks on how to deal with at-risk consumers dealing with financial stress with the aim of standardizing how lenders implement policies and procedures. Uh, and some of these items include waiving prepayment penalties, waiving internal fees and costs, not charging interest on interest, and then, of course, extending amortization periods. Now, Banks and other lenders will sometimes offer various forms of relief for consumers struggling in these scenarios, so it's not a new thing. But again, the FCAC's new guidelines seek to standardize the approach, uh, but do not actually prescribe direct action that institutions should take. Um, so it's interesting that the Canadian watchdog is you know, trying to place these guidelines in just to make sure that we don't have a runaway situation with uh, amortization uh, increasing. Now... Um, I also wanted to show here just because, you know, I'm in the market for a house one day. Obviously, I'm getting priced out. Um, but I wanted to show Canadian urban housing, housing starts uh, in the last month here. And I actually have it over the last few years. So the standalone monthly seasonal adjusted annual rate of total housing starts for all areas in Canada uh, in July was down about 10% from June. And keep in mind, June was the strongest month so far this year. So we are coming off of a high sequentially. But despite the monthly drop, total housing starts for all areas in Canada was about 7% above the five-year average. So, you know, I've been seeing a lot of news articles talking about housing starts um, being very slow. But, you know, if we're looking from a historical perspective, uh, they actually remain pretty robust here. And lastly... Uh, I just wanted to finish on the affordability of housing in Canada, where the median resident in both Toronto and Vancouver are paying above 80% of their median income on their mortgage payment. Uh, and, you know, we can also look 
at Canada. It remains at approximately 60% across the country. And then when we look at Montreal and Calgary, uh, they come in at better levels of around 40%. So, you know, it's just going to be interesting to see what we see with the housing market over the next couple of years here. I mean, you'll continue to see me do segments. Hopefully uh, you continue to enjoy them. Um, But yeah, now I'll just kind of open it up to the gentlemen and see if they have any uh, thoughts or comments. Interesting chart on affordability. So when we look back, um, affordability in Vancouver was almost as expensive or almost as bad in the 1980s and 1990s. And in both cases, um, that seemed to be right timed in line with the recession. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, and, and I think the the really quite an eye-opening stat is two-thirds of mortgage holders are having trouble meeting their financial commitments. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not a third, which is still a lot. Yeah. Like two-thirds, 67% are um, having trouble meeting their... I mean, that's a... It's a uh, it, it shouldn't be totally shocking given what's gone on, but, um, you know, you see it you know, plainly in front of you. And I'm, I'm not sure how we can't have some kind of a recession coming up if, if two thirds, like, you know, two out of yeah. three people are having trouble meeting their financial commitments and, you know, you they know, have mortgages, right? Yeah. And I just popped like TD back up on the screen here. So in 2021, um, right, am I looking? Yes, October 31st of 2021, 28% of their mortgages were greater in 25 years we are now at uh what did i write in my piece it's 40 46 percent um i believe or you know 47 percent at cibc uh td is now 48 percent of all mortgages are greater than 25 year amortization so it's just crazy half, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly so it's, it's just crazy to see and, and this is something that we'll continue to track and I'll uh, continue to update uh, my. Well, like those mortgages had to be extended clearly, or else the people were not able to afford the mortgage. I mean, that's yeah, that's totally. what's going on essentially. Yeah, totally. I think I still think it's pretty much underreported. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Brennan's the only one who's ever reported it. Well, that's I, true. I, when Thank I was initially writing Brennan. my piece, I was kind of like tooting my own horn, where it's like, oh, finally, you know there's some news articles that are actually really coming out about it. Um, But yeah, we were ahead of the curve. We were ahead of the curve. And if uh, anyone's wondering why the U S hasn't popped up, because there is quite a big difference. They haven't really moved. They use a standard 30 year fixed. They don't really do variable mortgages there. So there are a lot less interest rate sensitive compared to Canada. So it's just a, yeah, we were going through that. It was, yeah. it's, 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 it's crazy how, how different it is when, you know, you're locked in at 3% for 30 years. Like it's, yeah. you know, ours, we're locked in for some people did two years, three years, you know, five years would be on the longer end for Canadians. A lot do five, but you know, like that's can be on the longer end. Right? And you made the comment to the one time where it's like, no doubt in 2008, the Canadian banks did so much better because again, the consumers are taking on the interest rate risk um, yeah. more, I guess, um, you know, so it didn't re- re- or it reverted for Canadians paying lower rates. Um, anyways. Yeah. All right. I think that's it for this week's show. Um, we can uh, encourage you to keep your questions coming in for our Your Stock, Our Take segments. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, smash that subscribe button right now. Uh, keep that. And if you're viewing or listening on uh, iTunes, 
uh, rate and review us on there. All positive reviews, of course. Thank you very much. And uh, we've got a busy week ahead, so I'm going to wish you profitable investing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.